like Stuart said, we um, we would appreciate your prayer for Tuesday night as the elders and the deacons meet uh, to discuss and pray over things concerning the church. So we would really appreciate, I'm sure they would really appreciate your prayer as much as I would too. And uh, we've got interesting days ahead and we're just trusting the Lord uh, to make things happen for his glory. That's what we're concerned about. It's the glory of God. Amen. Who do you say that I am? Not working. <laughs> Here we go. These Wayne's so skillfully read for us. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 8 to 10. There is none like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like thine. All the nations thou hast made shall come and bow down before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou alone art God. And everyone said, Amen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Did you get that? If you know who Jesus Christ is, it's because the Father in heaven revealed that to you. Because your eyes were like mine prior to that, you were blind. You didn't know who he was. You might have known about him, but you had no idea who he was. Jesus asked his disciples the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And you know the answer, don't you? But many of that time didn't. And so they replied, John the Baptist, Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And yet there are many Christians today as they read this would think, how silly are they? Could they not see that he was indeed Jesus the Messiah, the Christ. You know, we have the benefit of the, the written word. The benefit of God's word written down for us. And we can easily determine that Jesus was who he said he was because of what we read here. But how would we fare if we were the people Jesus was asking that day? Who do people say that I am? Would we have recognized him? Or would we have been like the religious Pharisees and the religious people of that day and just not seen it? To be honest with you, I fear that there are many in Christian churches today who would not recognize Christ. I fear that many in the Christian church would confuse him with one of the prophets. Or even worse, Joel Olstein. 
And I believe my fear is justified because there are many in the Christian church who don't know Christ. There are many in the Christian church who don't know a great deal about Jesus. We know the basics. We know about Easter and Christmas. We learn that from the world. It's about bunnies and chocolates <laughs> and Santa Claus. We know about the death, the burial and resurrection and we can probably add a few more interesting facts to the list, but do we know Christ? Do we know our God? Some might even say, oh, that stuff is for the scholars and for pastors and those who like reading lots of books. But we have a simple faith. Therefore, we only need to know the simple things about him. Really? Throughout the Bible, we are exhorted to study, to show thyself a workman who does not need to be ashamed. When you don't know much about Jesus, you will be ashamed. But who rightly divides the word of truth. And we're exhorted by 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn, newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. Why? so that by it you may grow. A simple faith doesn't cut it. Brothers and sisters, if you've had, if you have any thought that a simple faith is satisfactory in deepening your knowledge of our great and mighty God, then I have news for you. It's one thing to know about someone, but it's another thing to actually know someone. Oh, I know about Scott Morrison. He's our Prime Minister. And I know that he professes to be a Christian, but I don't know him personally. And then on the other hand, there's my wife, Milani. I know her. And I know she loves me. She lives with me. <laughs> Anyone who lives with me has got to love me. But I know she loves the Lord. And I know she loves to read his word. And I know she loves her family. And I know her more than any one of you. Do you see the difference? Do you know him? Amen. Do you know him? Or do you know about him? Then there's our Lord who said, according to John chapter 10, verse 14, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. He didn't say, I know about them. He said, I know my sheep, relational, personal. That's how he knows us. Is that how you know him? If you do, you hear 
I'm not talking audible voices here. I'm talking the voice in his word. Let's get rid of that crazy stuff. That's unsure. That's not the certain, sure way of knowing the voice of God. This is. Doesn't contradict itself. Not like so many voices that people hear in their ear or their heads. And I had one person tell me something that they heard and then I said to them, well, where does it say that in the Bible? It didn't. <laughs> and half the time it doesn't. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. Brothers and sisters, do you know him? Do you know how great and mighty he is? Do you know that in your trials and suffering, he is your strength? And that he is your shelter in a time of storm? Do you know that in those moments of deep loneliness or fear, he is there in your midst? He is with you, never to leave you nor forsake you. Do you know that? The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome makes this astounding claim about our God. Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counsellor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. In a message preached by H.B. Charles Jr. On, on this passage, he concluded, God is deep, but his truth is shallow enough that his children can come and get a drink without the fear of drowning. Yet he is so deep that scholars can dive in and never, ever plumb his depths. That's deep. And that's our God. And we must know him. And we must keep wanting and desiring to know him. You can never know him enough because he is too deep to plumb. And yet we act like we know enough of him. How silly. We might say, oh, I have a simple faith and, know, and need only the simple things of God to get by. And I would reply, oh, but a simple faith is not enough to get the troubled, suffering child through the furnace of trials, persecution, grief and pain. That would be like a soldier at war who had a gun in his hand and didn't know how to use it. So that when the battle began, he was useless and unable to contribute to the cause. A simple faith is inadequate to help the child of God overcome the pride which so often rears up in the heart 
of a saved sinner who was still tempted but unable to fall because of 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 where it says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Why has it not overtaken you? Because God is faithful. Not because you are so strong and mighty. It's because God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, who will provide the way of escape? The God who is faithful. So that you will be able to endure. What a God. Amen. What a God we have. How great and awesome is He. You know, what, what we need is a deeper knowledge, a deeper understanding of a great God. Now, I'm afraid from what I hear in Christian circles today, I don't, I don't, hear, I don't hear that. I don't hear people talking about a great God. I hear people talking about a God who works at half strength. We need a deeper knowledge and understanding of who he is. What we need is to sit at his feet and consume his every word regarding himself so that in times of trouble or suffering or grief or persecution or conflict, we will be armed with the knowledge of our great and mighty all-consuming triune God. You know this book here? This book is about him. And thankfully it has bits in there about us. But it's all about him. From the beginning to the end. In the beginning, God. And in the end, it's the same thing. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In Psalm 86, David prays the prayer of a troubled, needy soul. He cries out to the Lord as a child would cry out to its parent for help. It's uncertain what events in his life moved him to pray this prayer. But what we do know is that there were many occasions in, in David's life which were fitting for a prayer like this. This is how he opens his prayer. He says, Bow down thine ear, O Jehovah, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am godly. O thou, my God, save thy servant that trusteth in thee. How many times have you prayed like that? Why did you pray like that? Because you know, like David knew, that the only one who can preserve your soul in troubled times is our infinitely almighty, all-powerful God. Didn't you? That's why you cried out to him. Otherwise you would be a silly person <laughs> if you didn't believe that. You see, knowing him makes all the difference in how you pray. Knowing him makes all the difference in how you will weather the storm of trials and pain. 
Knowing Him makes all the difference. You know, um, a few weeks ago, you guys, some of you guys prayed for Melania and myself and my family. We went through a pretty, pretty dark moment when my niece got very sick. And we, we phoned around, we messaged people and asked people to pray for us, not only here, but in Adelaide and in other parts. And uh, we asked for prayer because we were going through a really dark moment, a heavy moment in terms of our, um, our lives and our, our, our spiritual life. And, um, <clears throat> you know, something struck me and the light came on. Um, let me show you what happened. My, my niece got very sick mentally and she uh, had a psychotic episode to the point that um, she was claiming that she was possessed. And after talking with her and that, well, the funny thing was she claimed to be a Christian. And then she came, claimed to be possessed at the same time. I don't buy that much. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The devil cannot cohabit with Jesus. Jesus is almighty, all-powerful. And so I don't buy that. And so there was a problem with her. Problem was she wasn't saved. <laughs> and so we just gave her the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And then one um, the Sunday night, it all just blew out and she had a massive episode. She attacked one of her cousins in our house and um, and I had to come down there and restrain her. And, uh, and she was just cursing at me and saying all these nasty things. We prayed for her. We prayed over her. Melanie played hymns on her phone and we just trusted in the Lord. Times like that, you can only trust them. And, uh, you know, the next day, well, we had to call the police. Melanie phoned the police and they came and they, they restrained her and they took her away. And, you know, we were sort of just contemplating that and praying over it and just, you know, reading the scriptures and, and seeing where God was in this because we believe God is in all things. Don't you? And so God was in this. And it's interesting because, you know, we were looking at Romans and, the book of Job and Romans says, you know, Romans 8, you know, God works all things for the good of those who love him and afford according to his purpose. Anyway, we were just sitting down, Milani and I, we were talking and, you know, talking about what had happened, praying about it, and it just struck me. It just struck me. Anyone but a Christian would have seen that as a bad thing. A bad moment. Never seen the good hand of God in all of that. Let me tell you about my niece. She was born in New Zealand, came over here to Australia after 2001, once the, the law changed and New Zealand and Australia used to have a reciprocal agreement where we could travel back and forth um, from Australia to New Zealand and vice versa on a passport and be considered as permanent residents. And that sort of meant that, you know, if you lived here for a few months, you were entitled to government assistance. This is pre-2001. Well, anyway, Australia decided, the government decided before 2001, Howard decided that, no, no, we're not going to, you know, suck up from this one. And so they broke the agreement. But New Zealand honoured the agreement. Just saying. 
<laughs> but what they meant for anyone who from New Zealand who came over after 2001 was that you know you're here to work and if you have a bad moment where you're made redundant or you work out at Thomas Foods there and plant burns down and you have no job, tough luck. You don't get any assistance. Go and find help somewhere else. And so anyway, in the meantime, my niece came over after 2001. She met an Australian bloke and they fell in love and the next thing they had a little child. My niece couldn't get work, she couldn't get help from the government after she had separated from her partner and uh, she decided she wanted to go home, take her daughter home where she could get help. Sorry, not going to happen. Why? Because her dad's in Australia and you can't take her out of the country unless he gives permission and he said no, she's not going anywhere. Fair enough. In the meantime, my niece can't get any help. She has to rely on her family to help her. And that's okay. That's what we're there for. That's what family are there for. <clears throat> Fast forward it to a couple of weeks ago. Well, actually, a couple of months ago, my niece had been going back and forth to the doctors, to the hospital, asking for help, medical help. She knew something was wrong with her. She thought it was physical pain, but it was affecting her mind and her brain. Doctor said, oh, nothing wrong with you. And she kept going back and I said, well, we'll hook you into a psychologist. Can you afford to pay for it? <laughs> no Medicare. None of that kind of stuff. Can't help you. Two weeks ago, we phoned the police. They put her on, on a code one restraining order for mental health. You know what that means? They have no choice but to help her. There is no choice. How great is our God? He is great. My son was there. He was trying to help me restrain my niece. And he was copying a, you know, a lot of abuse from her. And uh, it was quite ugly. And he was praying over her. And, and um, he was quite shaken up. And uh, to the point where he was really fearful about, you know, um, about what had happened. My son's a believer. And uh, I set him down, you know, and I said, we set him down and we prayed and we went through the scriptures with him. And I said to him, you were meant to be here. This is for you as much as it is for me. So that we will learn to trust him more. My son's going into ministry as a youth pastor. What a great way to start ministry. No, seriously, what a great way to start ministry. To be weakened to the point where you know you have no strength in and of yourself, that you have to rely on the only one who can help you. God is good. God is good. My niece got help. She got treatment. And she is a lot better now. And we praise the Lord for that. And through that, we've just been encouraging her in the gospel. And she was at the Glenside Hospital for a while there. And she would take her Bible and go around and tell everybody about Jesus. 
I had to sit in on a meeting she had with one of the psychologists and then we were talking away there and she said to her, I'm praying for you. <laughs> and the psychologist said, oh, what do you mean? Oh, I'm praying for you, I'm praying that you come to know Jesus. Knowing him makes all the difference, folks. You see, if we didn't know how great and awesome and sovereign our God was, we wouldn't have thought he was in the midst of all of that. What do you think happened to Job? <clears throat> Read the book of Job. Even he realized God was in the midst of all of that, controlling all of that, because he is a sovereign God. He rules over all things. But knowing him makes all the difference. So what did David know about him? <clears throat> Among the gods there is none like unto thee. Sorry about the King James stuff. I love it. <laughs> Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. Anybody heard of that word before? Aseity. You can say it after me, aseity. This is an interesting word for two reasons. First, it's one of those words that many of us have never seen or heard before. <laughs> you get it? <laughs> and second, the reason why we've probably never seen or heard of this word before is because it means self-existing. Self-existing. So in layman's terms, it means that anything that is of the seity exists in and of itself. That is nothing outside of a self-existing thing contributes to its existence. Question for you. What things come to your mind or how many things come to your mind in the universe that you can name which have a seity? Somebody said, one, anybody got more than one? Be daring. <laughs> you said one. <laughs> one in three, you are totally correct. You answered God only, then you are totally correct. God is the only being in all the universe who has a seity. He is the only being in all the universe who is self-existing. Isn't that crazy? And that's why this word is rare, because it can only be attributed to one person in three. Our great and triune God. Nothing, absolutely nothing in the entire universe has a seity except God alone. God is self-existing. He doesn't require the help or the energy of anything else. That's our God. In fact, in Genesis 1, we read in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. 
existing, self-existing, from eternity past. Before anything else existed, there was God. He's not a created being. He is the creator of all things. The prayer of Moses in Psalm 90 supports this when it states, Before the mountains were born or gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And so God is a seity or self-existing. And you know, this has huge ramifications for us because it means if God is self-existing, then everything other than God exists by something or someone other than itself. Now, if we took the time, and I might suggest that we put aside a, a few thousand years to do this, but I, I reckon if we traced everything back to its origin then our tracks would conclude at the feet of our almighty God. And so the ramification is this, all creation, past, present and future, from the tiniest atom to the greatest mountain, has its existence in the triune God of the universe. And I use triune because God in a seity self-existed in perfect harmony and relation within the Godhead. He wasn't lonely, as some one song suggests. He didn't need us to fulfill him in any way because he was in perfect relationship within the Godhead. Think about that. He didn't need us to add anything to him because he's already perfect and perfect harmony, perfect relationship within the Godhead. There's ramifications for us even in that. If he didn't need us, then what's going on there? He created us for his glory so that we would ascribe to him glory. Not that he needs us to do that. But that's how it's done. In Genesis 1.26, we see more clearly the plurality of our triune God in creation when it says, let us make man. Now, even some have suggested the word Elohim used in uh, the Hebrew, and, and particularly in Genesis 1, in the beginning God, Elohim, some would suggest that that's reference to his uh, Godhead, the Godhead, the Trinity, because it's plural in the Hebrew. And uh, some probably debate that and say, well, it's referring to his greatness. I really don't care. <laughs> it's plural to me. His greatness is his Trinity. But if we get confused about that, well, then Genesis 1.26 is more clear in terms of his plurality. And it says, let us make man, referring to the Trinity. So David, when he penned the psalm and declares, among the gods there is none like 
unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. He was stating that there is nothing in this universe which is self-existing except God. Is that the God you know? In fact, nothing in this universe except except for God exists in a seity. Even the devil has no self-existing abilities. Even he is a created being just like you and me. His origins are from the Creator. Colossians 1, 16-17 confirms this for us, I believe, of the devil's created existence when the Apostle Paul writes, For in him were all things created in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible. You get that? Visible things and invisible things, all things, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, that's the dark things, that's the devil's realm. All things have been created through him and unto him, and he is before all things, and in him all things do what? Do you remember context always governs the way we interpret all things? And so the context refers to all things created in heaven, upon earth, things visible, things invisible, thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things means absolutely all things without any exception have been created by the God who is self-existing and who is before all things. And so all things here means all things. Then the Apostle Paul takes it to another level when he adds, and in him all things consist. That word consist means held together in the Greek. That is, all things would suddenly disintegrate should God decide to remove his hand from all things. Really? If God would just suddenly take his hand of all things and step away, we would all float into space in little tiny pieces maybe, smaller than atoms. But he holds all things together. Amen? We don't hold all things together. He holds all things together. And yet many would suppose that the devil has greater power than the God who holds all things together. And many give the prince of the air strength and sovereignty which are not his to claim. And many are deceived into believing that the devil has a seity and exists according to his own free will. Just read Job. Read Job if you have that understanding or you're troubled with that. And you will begin to see a totally different picture of who in fact is in control. 
And then there are some who would suppose that the self-existing God of the universe is dependent on fallen humanity like us. And that the self-existing God of the universe requires humanity's permission before he can do anything. The God who holds all things together needs permission. That he can't even help his children to do what is impossible for them to do without their permission. That's what I mean by God who works at half strength. And we will often say silly things like, We must make him the Lord of our lives. Really? <laughs> How do you make somebody who was already Lord? He was already King of Kings, the Lord of your life. Or we must learn to let go and let God take control. Really? How do you let somebody who is already in control take control? Some would suppose that the self-existing God of the universe needs humanity's fallen help to do what Jesus said was impossible for men to do. That it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for men and women to save themselves. Some would even have us believe that God loves us enough that he would not dare impose on our freedom. And yet that would be akin to saying that a father loves his children enough that he would not impose on their ability to save themselves despite the fact that they are drowning. Because he would not want to compromise their freedom to choose to save themselves from drowning despite their utter helplessness. See how silly it sounds? And yet Jesus made it quite clear from John 6.44 and there's many other scriptures that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And Jesus used the fishing term which means to draw or drag like a fisherman dragging a net Loaded with fish. Now did the fish give their permission to be caught in that net? No, in fact, that word helco metaphorically means to impel. And impel means to force, to drag. Anyone who's come to Christ has been dragged out of the pit of destruction out of the miry clay. Because they couldn't get themselves out of it. And I cannot fathom how the self-existing God of the universe, The one who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, 
should ever need my permission to perform on me what I cannot perform for myself and to do for me what is my greatest need unless I give him permission. To me, that is utter nonsense. That is not the God I know. You see, the God I know is like no other God. See, the God I know created the heavens and the earth in six days. It takes men months to build a 50-story skyscraper. The God I know promised to elderly people that they would have a son. And they did. The God I know is the God of Romans 9, verses 9 to 11, where Paul writes this. Well, this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. How old was Sarah? Not older than any of us here. God promised her that she would have a son. And did she have a son? And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, what was Rebecca's problem? The same as Sarah's. She had a son. She had children. Our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That is such an encouraging portion of scripture there, folks. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, not because of anything you do, but because of him who calls you. She was told, the older was served, the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And we have trouble with that. Don't forget that. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Would we call God an unjust God for hating Esau but loving Jacob? Many would. And many would just brush past that and not deal with it. But how can you not deal with it when it's his word? This is how we deal with it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Was God unjust for loving Jacob and hating Esau? By no means. Why? Well, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Why? Because he is a seity, self-existing, the creator of all things. All things originate from him. That's why he is just in doing as he pleases. Not to please anyone, but to please himself. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Don't tell me who I shall have mercy on. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion on. Don't tell me who I should be compassionate to. Even some of us humans think like that. And we have trouble believing that a God can act like that. Or our God. So then it depends not on what 
On what? It depends not on human will or exertion, but on who? Isn't that good news? You don't sound like it's good news. Trust me, folks, that is good news. If it depended on you and your will, you would not be saved because you can't be saved by works. Where are we? On human will exertion, but on God who has mercy, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that by my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. On whose will? His will, and he hardens, he hardens, whoever he wills. I don't know if you know the story about Pharaoh. Scriptures tell us Pharaoh had a hard heart. And then what does God do? Hardens it even more. That's what that means. He is a God who does as he pleases. That's why it's so humbling. This is humbling, folks. If you're not humbled by this, then my prayer is for you. If you do not see the glory of God in this, then my prayer is for you that we have a God who is all wise, who is all knowing, who is perfect in every way. The fact that you are a Christian is not because you were wise or because you were all knowing or because you were so perfect, but because of him who loved Jacob and hated Esau. You could have been an Esau. Thankfully, you're Jacob. Yeah? And it's because of the one who called you. I don't know about you, but our God is good. That's a great thing. You know, God working at hard strength not come to your help unless you gave him permission. Even though he could see you drowning in a pool of filth and muck, as the psalmist calls it, the miry clay, crying out for help, he can't act unless you give him the permission to do that. What a hopeless God, folks. Don't you think? What a hopeless, heartless, powerless God that would be. I'm thankful my God's not like that. I'm thankful that when I was in the miry clay, sucking up the dirt of the world, drinking the dirty water of this culture, my God pulled me out. Because I could never have done it myself. Neither could you.
You say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who can resist his will? You can't resist the God who is all existing. As hard as you try, when his plan is for you, he is for you. And he will come for you. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? Have you ever done pottery before? Anybody here done a bit of pottery? Work with clay? You shape it, you, you make it. I've done a bit of that and put it on a wheel and you spin it and you can make bowls and cups and that. And then once you finish, you put it on the shelf to dry out a bit and then you can put it in the kiln to fire it up. You add a bit of glaze to it. Have you ever heard your bit of clay talk back to you? <laughs> Has your bit of clay ever said to you, why did you make me a cup instead of a bowl? What it's saying then? Who are we, O oh men, to tell God what up? Who are we? Romans 8 31, what should we say? What shall we then say to these things of God before us who can be against us? This is the good news, folks. This is the good news. The good news is that we have a great and mighty and awesome God who is self-existing, who has created all things and who does as he pleases. And the good news is this. You are sitting in his church being told all about him. You could be out there like Esau, but you are here because God is self-existing. God is sovereign and God does as he pleases and it pleased him to place you here this morning sitting on those seats to be told and reminded and taught that you have a great and awesome and mighty and powerful God that when you are weak, you are strong because his grace is sufficient for you. That when you are suffering through pain, he is there to help you, to comfort you, because he is the God of all comfort. And when life to you seems like a storm, he is your shelter in the time of storm. And when your life is being rocked by whatever may be rocking your life, he is the rock of all ages, steadfast and strong. And when things don't look great, you can trust God has a purpose in that. For your good, be it to weather the storm for his glory. Because he will give glory out of that. Folks, I just want you to know how great and awesome your God is. I want you to know that he acts on your behalf without your permission. He doesn't need your permission. How silly would that be for a pot of clay to tell the 
the, the, the potter, you can come and shake me now. <laughs> How ridiculous would that be? And to think that us humans can tell him what to do. How ridiculous would that be? You know him. You know how great he is. You know him. My challenge for you this week is to know him. Get your Bibles out and, and let him speak to your hearts and your minds about him. When you get your Bibles out, what you want to do is not search in there for what it means for me. Search in there for what it says about him. Is that how you study the Bible? Look in there for what it says about him and you will be surprised at what you find there about him. Because every single page is all about him. Some might say, oh, I know the book of Esther, there's no mention of God there. Oh, he's there. All right. <laughs> you just have to see him. You just have to look closer. He is there. That's my challenge for you this week. Know him. Don't just know about him. But you have to know about him in order to get to know him. Just like I had to know about Milani in order to get to know her. I had to ring her up every single day, maybe twice or three times a day actually, and talk to her. And I wanted to know all about her. I wanted to know her likes and dislikes so that I didn't upset her. <laughs> and once I worked it all out, then I, we got a bit closer. <laughs> and I figured, figured out that I still hadn't worked it out properly yet. And I still had to get to know her more. And I'm still learning. And it's the same with your God. If you are here today and you believe you know God deeper than anybody else in here, I'll tell you, you don't. Not even I do. He is too deep to plumb. He is unfathomable. You know what that means? We can never know him enough. Folks, please, I plead with you, get to know him. Get to know him for your sake, for the sake of the church, for the glory of God. You know, we, we need people like this. I need people like this here. You need people like this here who know him. That when we go through hard times and trials, you can say to us, trust the Lord. He is in this. He works all things for the good of those who love him and accord according to his purpose. We need people like that here. That if we don't get our eyes fixed on the world, if we don't get our eyes fixed on ourselves, and you point us to Hebrews 12 continually to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's all I'm here to do for you, is to help you fix your eyes on Let's pray. Our Father God, just want to pray and thank you, Lord, that you are a great and mighty and awesome God. Lord, that you would incarnate yourself to come down here on this earth among sinful people, Lord, and that you would walk amongst us and that you would even cover yourself with a covering of grace because if we were to look at you in all your glory, 
and all your splendour as you are, we would evaporate and we would be no more. In fact, you did that for Moses. You hid yourself in a burning bush that didn't consume itself. And Lord, our, our prayer is this, Lord, that we would just know you more and that in knowing you more, we will love you better. And Lord, we have the tendency in our life to think mostly about us. That's our nature. It's a fallen nature. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. They were thinking about themselves, wanting to be worshipped rather than to be worshipped. So we come to you, Lord, and we just pray that you take our eyes of ourselves, put the eyes of our hearts on you, so that, Lord, we may stand firm in the days to come. And we may be strong in the strength of the Lord. And we may bring praise in your name. And we may have faith. Lord, we pray this and we ask for because you are a great and awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. There is none like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like thine. All the nations thou hast made shall come and bow down before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. Thou alone art God. May the Lord bless you and may you enjoy a great and awesome day.